Now in your money, Caroline Wright will bring back Hamilton Keats, CEO and co-founder of Crayon, to discuss strategies for safeguarding your digital assets. Personally, I keep mine on a USB stick, so I'm keen to see if that's still the best way. Good morning, Caroline. Good morning. I'm joined again today by Hamilton Keats, who is CEO and co-founder of Crayon, which is a supplier of wallet solutions for securing digital assets. Now, yesterday, we took a dive into how the tokenization of real-world assets works, and we finished the conversation by saying that we needed to move on to the importance of understanding custody. So today, we're going to do just that. Thank you for joining me again, Hamilton. Thank you for having me again. Great to talk to you again. Let's take a look at secure keys, which are the essential bit of information allowing you to access and control digital assets on a blockchain. Can you explain a little more about how they work and why it's so very important to keep private keys safe? Yeah, absolutely. Basically, when you have a wallet solution, the private keys that are in your control or under your ownership determine your ability to control the assets within your wallet. So if you wanted to transfer those to another wallet or pledge them to a protocol or whatever it may be that you might want to do with those assets, you need a private key to be able to do that. Generally, the problem that I have with this space is that very few people take the time to educate themselves on it. And if you give someone access to your private key, or if someone has the ability to control your private key or steal your private key, they have the ability to steal all of your assets. So I always think of it like this. A lot of people tend to use MetaMask, right? When you're first getting into the centralized finance in particular, when you go outside of the realms of centralized exchanges, mm-hmm. people use MetaMask because it is the de facto wallet solution for most retail investors and even some institutional investors still use metamask which drives me insane because metamask is basically a hot wallet right and it is the holy grail of hot wallets can you do a very quick explainer of the difference between a hot and a cold wallet okay okay absolutely so a hot wallet is like having a safe at home with all your cash in that safe and leaving the key to your safe on the kitchen table so that anyone that walks into your house can grab the key and empty the safe. And the reason it's like that is because the private key, even if it's encrypted, it's stored on your device. So if you have a MetaMask on your laptop and someone gains access to your wallet or gains access to your home and gains access to your computer, they have access to that private key and they can drain your wallet. Now, a cold wallet is like leaving the key to the safe in a separate location. So nobody can just walk into your house and grab that key off your kitchen table. But every time you want to open the safe, you've still got to go away and retrieve that private key from a separate location, bring it home and unlock the safe. And at the same time, if someone knows where you've stored your private key, they can retrieve that key and open your cold wallet. So whilst institutions tend to favor cold wallets they're still not much better than a hot wallet to a degree and that's why we love to pitch multi-party computation or what we would like to refer to colloquially as a warm wallet now there's a couple of types of warm wallet right one of the most common ones is what we call a multi-sig wallet now this is like having two separate keys stored in separate locations great in theory in in practice a real pain in the butt to, to actually deal with the best solution you can possibly have is a cryptographic solution 
called multi-party computation. And when we got into this space, we spent a lot of time reviewing different cryptographic protocols and solutions within the, the digital asset custody space. And this was really the best possible solution. Now, multi-party computation involves sharding a private key. So I talked about hot wallet where it's a solution where you're leaving the private key to the safe in your home, on your kitchen table, and a cold wallet where you're leaving it in a third-party site. Well, multi-party computation involves taking that private key at inception and cutting it into little pieces. Let's say, hypothetically, we cut your key into 10 different pieces and then store it in 10 different locations. So if someone wants to steal that or, or gain access to your safe, they've got to figure out where the majority of those pieces of the key are bring them together before they can ever unlock your safe, which just makes it exponentially more secure. But now the benefit to this is that it almost has the same accessibility as a hot wallet because I can remotely pull together those shards and open up my wallet or control my wallet. And one of the ways that I like to think about this purely metaphorically is that if you imagine you have a thousand piece puzzle, and if you just have one piece of that puzzle, you have absolutely no idea what that puzzle looks like. But if you have, let's say 50% or more of that puzzle, then you have a pretty good idea of what the full puzzle might look like. And that's kind of how threshold cryptography works in multi-party computation. If I have the majority of key pieces and they agree to authorize a transaction, I can determine what the signature looks like and send that to the chain. And I can do that without ever having all of the pieces together. So I don't have to go to a thousand different locations and bring those pieces back to my house, unlock my safe. I can do it without ever putting them together just by using what we call linear interpolation. Now, what you were saying there was that I think traditional financial institutions aren't necessarily using this technology. So I wonder what you would say is holding them back and could regulations be something that they're concerned about here? Very timely and relevant that you should mention regulation for Hong Kong, especially because I'm sure you're aware Hong Kong has just introduced regulation relating to retail investment in crypto assets. And as part of the advisory paper that they brought out, they actually touched on crypto custody. The real kind of custody that they were looking for or what they were advocating for primarily was cold storage. What this means in a technical aspect is what we call air gapping or storing the digital key offline, typically in what we call a hardware security module, where I need to connect that device to the internet before I can transact with it. Traditionally, that is what financial institutions have gone for as a solution when they're dealing with not just digital assets, but also private key management for their existing infrastructure, right? Because don't forget, private keys or public-private key pairs aren't a new phenomenon. We've been using them to secure digital infrastructure for decades now. Really, everyone is advocating for cold storage because it's a known thing and something that is easy to get to grips with, whereas cryptographic or threshold cryptography like multi-party computation, people tend to have 
a much more challenging time getting to grips with it and understanding its use cases. But now with the advent of digital assets, the growth of this industry, I think people are starting to come around to it and understand that there are alternatives which offer a much better security and accessibility, combination of security and accessibility. So what might drive the more widespread adoption of this? I think it sounds like people are warming up to the idea, but what's it going to take to fully adopt it? I think it's really going to come down to education and awareness. You know, a lot of people are, tend to be afraid. Most mainstream news publications tend to publicize a lot of the exploits and hacks that occur in crypto, even though in terms of annual losses, they're dwarfed by what you would find in terms of exploits with fraud, and whether it's credit card fraud or embezzlement that occurs in traditional finance. It comes down to educating people and getting comfortable with the fact that, hey, we live in a digital world. Don't be afraid just because we say it, it involves crypto. The other one in more general terms is going to be abstraction. And that's abstraction away from mainstream users. Last time we talked about the tokenization of real-world assets like USITs and REITs and ultimately equities and potentially real estate and stuff like gold that's being tokenized. But really, to the end user, do, do they care? I mean, do you care whether it's tokenized or whether it's on a piece of paper sitting with your bank in custody in a fireproof safe? The answer is it, it doesn't really matter to you. As long as you can log in, you can see it, you're comfortable that it's insured and it's secured and it's underwritten by whatever regulatory insurance or capital adequacy requirement is in place with the bank and within the jurisdiction that you're in. You don't really care. So abstraction is going to play a key role in this going forward. And for the end user, it's going to be a much better user experience for them because they have the same degree of accessibility that they do with their traditional investment platforms. But they also have the comfort of knowing that it is secured at an enterprise grade. Thank you for explaining all of that so very clearly. That's Hamilton Keats, CEO and co-founder of Crayon.